0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am really excited today to be interviewing Dr. Sam Lebovic about his book, A Righteous Smokescreen, Post-War America and the Politics of Cultural Globalization which is published by University of Chicago Press. And actually, we're getting a bit of a sneak peek because it's not coming out for a few more weeks later in 2022. Um, The book is an examination of how post-war America, the United States, twisted its ideal of the free flow of information into a one-sided export of values and a tool with quite global consequences, um, many of which we are still living in that world today. Um, So we're going to be discussing some of the aspects of this book, um, and particularly the ways in which the United States, uh, quite purposely in the immediate post-war, used a number of tools, both in the domestic sphere and in terms of international conferences and law, to ensure that globalization ended up looking a particular way. So thank you for being here and sharing your time with us on the podcast.
0: Thanks. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: So I was wondering if we could start off, please, by introducing yourself, your academic background and explain how you came to write this book.
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, those two things go pretty well together because this book's had a fairly long uh, gestation period. So my trajectory and its trajectory are pretty intertwined. Um, you know, I really I grew up in Australia um, and did my undergraduate studies there in a, in a culture awash with American culture. You know, um, I have a very clear memory Um you know, as a kid, you know, watching American basketball, watching American movies, American pop culture, and having a sense always that there was, that was a kind of unusual question, you know, how did American culture become so dominant? Um, And probably a nascent sense, although one I didn't really come to a fuller understanding of until undergraduate, that there was an odd uh, asymmetry there that, you know, when we came to America, I was on a family vacation, you know, Australia was a very exotic place that Americans knew almost nothing about. Uh, there was a kind of funny moment in the mid 90s, uh, sort of anecdotally when uh, The Simpsons, which was you know hugely popular obviously in Australia, had an episode set in Australia and everyone was really looking forward to it. And when it came on, uh, there was just kind of a puzzlement that it wasn't it didn't really seem to be about Australia at all. The accents seemed more South African. It was sort of there was no real understanding about any other part of the world it seemed. Um, And so this sort of was germinating in my head as I was studying American history as an undergraduate. um, And I wrote a a senior uh, honors paper on uh, the Beatles invasion of America uh, in the 64, 65, which was really asking like, what does it mean for America to be importing culture at a moment when it had been really exporting culture? And that was sort of the first major research project I'd ever done. And so already interested in the kind of rethinking the history of cultural globalization. On the basis of that, I applied to graduate schools in America. Uh, I moved to the University of Chicago to start doing a PhD. And that was sort of the question I was working on, was how did American culture become globally dominant and what were its sort of implications for American history? And I wrote my first year research paper on the origins of the Fulbright program. um, And sort of, you know, both of those part sort of short pieces on the Beatles and then on the Fulbright program I later published. Um, but I couldn't really imagine a way, as a you know PhD student, to come up with a dissertation that would take on this question that would sort of that seemed feasible. Um, and I also got very interested in the politics of press freedom and domestic civil liberties. Um, and so I wrote a first book, a dissertation, and then a first book on the history of American press freedom. You know, these questions about globalization were still in the back of my mind. There's sections of that book that are on the 1948. Uh, conferences on global freedom of information, which would work their way into this book eventually too. Um, But I hadn't found a way to tackle the problem. Uh, So I was teaching courses on cultural globalization. I was reading about globalization, uh, but it hadn't turned into a research project. Um, And, you know, after 2016, my book, my first book came out and I was looking for a second project Uh, and there were sort of two impulses, sort of more professional and political in my mind as I was thinking about a second project. Uh, the first was I'd been given advice to try to find a small second book project uh, to sort of help me get it done while my administrative duties ramped up as a tenured professor. Uh, and the second was really after the election of Donald Trump, um, you know, I'd written a lot about press freedom and freedom of speech and the need to sort of focus more on producing new forms of information uh, rather than kind of engaging in just opinion commentary and controversy. And so I wanted to take that advice to heart and continue to sort of stay in my lane. Um, I sort of thought there was a bit of a Trump derangement throughout the academy uh, and to, to work on something that would produce some new information that was relevant to contemporary debates about the liberal world order and liberal internationalism, but that would generate new information. Uh, so I was I spent a couple of years kind of bouncing around different ideas for what that smaller archivally based project would be. And you know, I benefit, I live in DC, so I'm close to the federal archives. Uh, so for a while, I was very interested in passport control and looking at the history of the passport officers. Uh, for a time, I went back to looking at the Fulbright program and its origins in war surplus disposal, which we may talk about. And, you know, did some research on that. Uh, and as I was teaching books on kind of the liberal international order and on cultural globalization, I realized that all these kind of little projects that I was thinking of as potentially small books or side projects, really all hung together as a book that would explain that question that had been with me for years, which was how did America kind of come to globally dominate international cultural flows? Uh, And I wanted to put that story in the story of kind of liberal internationalism in the 1940s where we've traditionally looked at the UN General Assembly or the Security Council or the IMF, but to look at these other forms of globalization on the one hand, and on the other to sort of go back to that question Uh, which I think had been missed in the literature, really, which was, why is it that as America's exporting so much culture, it's really importing very little in the 1940s and 1950s? And that struck me as a way to rethink both the dynamics of cultural globalization, but also what's happening in post-war American political culture. And so I sort of realized quite belatedly that all these little themes and weird little bureaucracies I'd been researching really did kind of hang together. Um, And so that's the origins uh, of the book.
1: That does, in fact, explain the origins. Um, As you were talking through that, I was like, oh, that's chapter three. Oh, okay, that makes sense that that's a piece of this. Um, So we are going to talk about some of these pieces. Um, And I sort of want to start with, as you said, the traditional place that we often look for these ideas, liberal internationalism, um, the 1940s and the sort of the creation of the UN. And we often look to these institutions historically and currently is kind of being like, well, shouldn't that be where globalization comes from? Shouldn't that be where all the countries come together? Um, and in individual pieces of the historical investigation looking at particular parts of the UN um structure or the UN organizations, things like that, um, you know, there's there's pieces of that answer. In some ways yes, in some ways no, kind of depends. And then of course Today and for decades, there's been long running criticism that, well, these things say that they're the international organizations and the level above states, but they're really not very powerful at all. They really don't do very much at all. They kind of talk a big talk, but that's really all there is. Um, And particularly for certain aspects of the UN organization, this has been a really enduring criticism. And so I was really interested to see in the beginning part of your book that these two strands not only come together, but also are part of the story of how the U.S. becomes so dominant. Because in some respects, to understand how the U.S. becomes so dominant, you sort of have to go, well, what could the alternatives have been and why didn't they become dominant? Um, And you really neatly draw these together in explaining to us um, the creation of UNESCO, which we now think of as sort of cultural heritage sites, you know, shiny plaques on ancient things. Um, But actually, you remind us that UNESCO comes out of the massive need to reconstruct education after World War II with some quite stunning statistics. Right, um, just to give you, just to give you—you you obviously wrote this—but to give the listeners one example: uh, quote, in Greece, some ninety-one percent of the nation's schools have been seriously damaged or destroyed. In the Philippines, it was ninety-five percent. And we're really talking about quite total destruction globally. And that's what UNESCO is meant to solve. And yet it didn't, and it doesn't, and we now have the sort of nice shiny plaque thing, which is obviously a simplification, but still probably most people's first association. Can you explain to us how we can understand how we ended up with kind of weak UN institutions and a dominant United States, that these things are actually much more linked than we might realize?
0: Sure. I mean, so that's exactly the problematic that I'm trying to deal with. I mean, the reason that the U.S. is going to be so dominant in post-war cultural flows is in some ways a sort of inevitability of the history of World War II, uh, you know, the sort of mass devastation to so much of the world. And, you know, the U.S. is famously unbombed, right? Its economy is booming. It doesn't suffer devastation. Um, you know, some of its occupied colonies do, uh, but the mainland U.S. doesn't. Uh And so there's a, you know, the the challenge really in connecting the history of the UN to sort of the rise of the US is to show that there was any any effort or any imagination that the UN could have played a more robust role in post-war cultural flows that it wasn't just going to always sort of ride alongside the sort of inevitabilities of economic dominance that the US was going to experience. And the place that I decide to look at that, I mean, it's sort of central to the origins of UNESCO. Uh, is the very serious efforts in 1944 through about 1946 to imagine a multilateral organization that was going to be designed to reconstruct post-war devastated educational systems. And so, you know, what we now know as UNESCO was actually first proposed, uh, its first title was going to be the United Nations Educational and Cultural Reconstruction Organization. Uh, And it grew out of Uh, a sequence of meetings amongst uh, ministers of education from occupied allied nations in Europe and then eventually from around the world who came together to kind of document how badly devastated their schools were, how desperately they needed material resources to rebuild schools. And in these debates, a number of these countries, some of them poorer, some of them still under colonial occupation, saw this as a way of building up uh, a kind of international educational uh, organisation that would have the capacity to redistribute resources and kind of act as a, a redistributive kind of welfare state, I guess would be the analogy, to take, you know, the, the rich would put in this and then this organization would allocate to the poor and help rebuild. Uh, and the U.S. is briefly in 1944, it sends delegates to these first meetings and it, it sort of agrees that, yes, this is exactly the right sort of thing to be done uh, and will pay into this what was going to be an educational reconstruction fund. Uh, Over the next year or two, uh, as sort of the State Department begins to do ever grander planning for the broader United Nations project, as it begins to get some doubts about what's happening in Eastern Europe, as it begins to be concerned about congressional pushback, uh, particularly from Southern uh, Democrats who are very high up in the foreign relations committees, and they're very concerned that any really robust organization that's going to take U.S. money and give it around the world and also play a role in sort of rebuilding educational systems, might be the kind of thick governance structure that could maybe say dictate to the US that some of its educational uh, establishments and structures are not quite adequate. Um, and there's a moment when one of the advocates for a kind of more robust UNESCO uh, says like, this is gonna go nowhere unless we can make very clear to uh, America that you know, no United Nations organization is going to be able to tell Mississippi that it needs to spend more money educating its black population. I mean, the sort of stakes here are, are quite apparent. And so, ultimately, as UNESCO is being formed, uh, the US tears up the first draft of the Constitution, which was going to create this cultural reconstruction fund, and proposes instead this much more kind of airy vision of uh, an organization devoted to free flows of information around the world. And it does so, in part, under the sort of on the theory that this is a more liberal program, right? It's a larger program, it's going to really encourage an interchange of ideas everywhere around the world, and it's not going to be just sort of doing this short-term messy project of rebuilding schools. But as it transforms the organization into this kind of more ambitious cultural venture, it also cuts the budget and ensures that it won't have the money to do kind of material reconstruction projects. Uh, And this is incredibly controversial at the time. It's the subject of a lot of protest from nations from the global south and from places like in Eastern Europe who said, like, two years ago, you promised us that the reason we were going to have this organization was you were going to give us money to do reconstruction. Like, what happened to that? Uh, And the U.S. just kind of stonewalls. It says, don't worry, our private charities will provide the money. And, you know, private charities provide the money for some period of time, but it overwhelmingly goes to Europe. It doesn't go to other parts of the world. And what you get out of it is a, an organization that has like incredibly lofty liberal universalist rhetoric uh, but no real money to do very much. Um, and you know UNESCO in many ways is kind of casting around for a reason to be for much of the post-war period and much later will hit upon the heritage program as the sort of thing that it can do that no one else can do. Um, but the earlier visions are much more robust. I mean, the guy who put the S in UNESCO, the guy who sort of said that it should also deal with science and not just culture and education, it was a, a scientist by the name of Joseph Needham, who was very interested in, in China. He he's, he wrote uh, a very large history of sort of science and civilization in China that is kind of famous in world history circles. Uh, and he actually at the time says, you know, UNESCO shouldn't just be, sorry, globalization and, and international funding shouldn't just be going to uh, what he called the bright zone of cultural exchange. We shouldn't just be putting resources into networks between British and American scientists, for instance. He's like they already have the ways to do that. What we need is a way to put, uh, you know, Venezuelan entomologists in touch with Indian entomologists, and like that's an exchange that an international organization should be helping to develop by spending the money. Um, and he said it would be absurd to have any money go to an organization that was focused not on particular redistributive efforts, but just kind of on on a general encouragement of free flow, because that will just encourage more flows within what he called the bright zone. And I think in many ways, that's what we lived with, right? Uh, After World War II, UNESCO couldn't redirect the flows of culture, it could just kind of add to or accelerate already existing flows, which was where the money was.
1: Thank you for explaining that. I think it provides a really good starting point um, for the book, but also a really helpful grounding point for kind of understanding what could have been and therefore helps us see what was. Um, And so to kind of follow this thread of funding, because in a lot of cases, um, not just in this book, but kind of follow the money does seem to help us understand things. Um, And that seems to be incredibly true in how the basis for US ability to have this global imprint um, was created. Now, obviously, separate from the goal of doing it, how, how do you actually manage it? If you want to do it, how do you do it? And I was really stunned, quite honestly, to learn that a lot of these aspects that I had previously understood to be separate are actually really interconnected in terms of their funding. The aspects are um, educational exchanges. You've already mentioned the Fulbright, um, the expansion of US embassies around the world, uh, and the dominance of US companies in global aviation. Um, all of which are, again, seem to be quite separate, definitely ways in which the United States um, dominates and also similarly financed in their initial establishment. So you already mentioned war surplus. We know where that comes from. The US wasn't bombed and had an industrial military capacity that no one had really expected could be quite at that scale. How exactly did how how is it exactly figured out that hang on a second, we have all this extra stuff, we could get these things out of it?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I we've sort of jumped over the war surplus. Let me just pause for a minute because I think it's not an obvious history. Uh, it's sort of one of the great forgotten stories of the nineteen forties, I think, that at the end of the war, you know, America is kind of mobilizing this massive military industrial capacity. To prepare for an invasion of Japan, and when the bombs drop, it's sort of like the music stops in a in a sort of globe circling game of musical chairs, and all of this logistical stuff is just sort of parked where it is, and it's about you know close to eleven billion dollars worth of material, uh, and it's not weapons exclusively; it's everything you need for a modern army. I mean, some of my favorite examples are. Um, uh, there are 1.3 million eye shields on Saipan, right, that are you know, 6 million containers of decontaminating agents. There are huge fleets of trucks uh, parked outside of cities in India. Uh, all of this material is just sort of sitting there and the US has to work out what to do with it. Um, And, you know, there are some proposals that it should be donated as charity, which would have been the sort of redistributive UNESCO vision. And in fact, there were people in the UNESCO debates saying, why don't we ask for all of this material to be turned over to help us rebuild our schools? Uh, Then there are proposals in the US uh, to sell it for profit. But that's kind of a bit tricky because there's a worry that that will soak up. Uh, sort of the few remaining dollars in the global economy, and hurt America's private enterprises that are about to start a, sort of an export drive after World War Two, and so a solution is picked up on uh, by a sort of small organization that's called the Office of the Foreign Liquidation Commissioner, who's responsible for for handling this material, and that's that it can be sold overseas, but not sold necessarily for dollars because there are very few dollars in the global economy. It can be sold in part in kind of credit arrangements, um, but it's also, they're going to set aside tranches of this money for what the U.S. calls intangible benefits, uh, for things that other nations can pay for or give to the U.S. that would be useful to the U.S., um, but are not you know, going to cost dollars. And the three that you've mentioned are the three most important of those. Uh, The first is educational exchange. So the Fulbright program, which is now the most famous kind of international educational exchange program in the world, it's kind of the largest uh, in world history. Um, You know, that is originally funded for by the sale of war surplus. So you are a foreign nation, say China, and you've got all of this leftover war material sitting in your country. And you say, well, we're going to buy all of that. uh, And in exchange, part of we'll set aside some part of what it's worth, to pay for the Fulbright program. So we'll set aside $20 million to run an educational exchange program between the US and China. And so what you get is actually the US uses the sale of surplus to build an educational exchange infrastructure that puts the US at the center. Uh, you know, Until then, the US hadn't really been the kind of center of international education. You'd be more likely uh, to go to France or England or Germany, depending on where you were in the kind of imperial world order, you had different poles. You know, the US is always going to become a kind of, a sort of educational superpower in the 40s and 50s, given how much the economy is booming. But this is, again, an example of creating the kind of networks that add to the bright zone of exchange, right? It's a way of bringing in a kind of cultivated elite. Of foreign students to be educated at the US and also to give US citizens an opportunity to be educated overseas and sort of cultivate themselves as leaders of a kind of global hegemonic class and and that's the origins of the Fulbright program that's it runs on surplus uh, funding for the first 15-16 years um, and it creates this kind of weird footprint Uh, you know if you don't have surplus in the first years of the project uh, you don't have a Fulbright program Um, and the idea for using these intangible benefits is actually Fulbright's, uh, we think. Um, we're not exactly sure where Fulbright kind of got the idea to trade war surplus for educational and educational exchange program. Uh, my suspicion is that he got the idea from the discussions about the origins of UNESCO. Uh, he'd been the delegate to some of the early meetings that led to UNESCO. And when he comes back, he comes up with this idea, you know, the biographer. In the biographies of Fulbright, they say that he got the idea at a garden party talking to some people after a congressional testimony. Um, I don't think that necessarily lines up or makes sense with some of the dates involved. Uh, But in any case, it's it's a clear example of a different use of the war surplus than the one that was being imagined in UNESCO. In UNESCO, thinking about sort of centrally managing the surplus to do uh, relief and charity work. And then Fulbright comes up with this idea that it could be sold um, and exchanged to create the Fulbright Program. When he proposes that, the State Department loves the idea, and the Office of the Foreign Liquidation Commissioner love the idea, uh, and they rewrite the legislation to say it's not just going to be for educational exchange, but it's also going to be for these other things. And the two that you mentioned, uh, one of them is for the say uh, for the purchase of embassy lands. So you know, the U.S. in 1946 really only owns about 115 buildings around the world. And by 1952, it's going to own almost 740. So, it, at the time that a lot of the rest of the world is kind of busily digging out from the World War II rubble and trying to re- rebuild its societies, uh, the U.S. is giving people war surplus, saying you can have this material that you need, uh, and in exchange, we'll, we'll buy that block over there, and we're going to, and we'll build a new embassy over there, and you know, it kind of creates an infrastructure to house it's kind of international diplomatic corps, to house libraries and cultural uh, cultural programs and you know these embassies are also as we know where things like the CIA locate themselves undercover so again flipping this sort of lumpy material from the war into a network that's very useful uh, and the final one that you mentioned is civil aviation agreements um, you know this is a kind of complicated story that I can get into more if you or your listeners are interested, but basically after World War II there's a need to negotiate civil aviation agreements that will give commercial airlines the right to land in different locations. Um, and the British Empire is very hesitant to sign over these rights to the U.S. because it knows that the U.S. has a much stronger commercial aviation sector in part because of the way that the two nations divvied up the division of labor of producing aircraft for the war and partly because of the sort of economic prospects of the two moving forward. But the British Empire has a large geographic footprint. And so it knows that if it stops the US from getting landing rights in somewhere like Egypt, right, it will be able to prevent US commercial airlines from becoming dominant in routes through the Middle East. And there's efforts to negotiate a multilateral treaty uh, to kind of establish global rights to free landing. Um, and that falls apart because of these kind of geopolitical considerations. And then the US begins bilaterally negotiating these agreements with other nations around the world to get access to places like Egypt. And what it uses to sweeten the deal is that it transfers over surplus air equipment as part of these negotiations. And it says to Egypt, if you give us landing rights, we'll give you all of this stuff that will help you establish a new airport and will help build up your own commercial air fleet. And that's a deal that the British can't match. And on the basis of those kind of negotiations, the US establishes its uh, sort of civil aviation landscape where its planes can land anywhere in the world. Um, and that allows it to then dominate the international air industry in the years after World War II. So we often think of these things as kind of an inevitable byproduct of US sort of global power. But actually, they have very real footprints uh, and a very real structure produced. By World War II military production, that's then converted into cultural power through a process of diplomatic negotiation. And that's one of the sort of things I'm interested in. Uh, You know, the whole book, in many ways, as you said, is about follow the money. Um, It's really about trying to put political economy back into the story of cultural globalization.
1: Mm, That's a very succinct way to put it. Um, So I want to kind of pick up on a few things that you've mentioned, um, because I personally found this section of the book just absolutely fascinating um, and one thing is kind of this idea of the bilateral negotiations i think we'll see this in a few other areas kind of when the international doesn't work the u.s goes bilaterally um, and sometimes it's because what exists on the ground and so as you said the unevenness of where fulbright programs are and how that correlates to kind of where war surplus happened to be when the music stopped abruptly And it's quite interesting. That's in some ways almost a natural experiment, right? That wasn't necessarily planned that it would be those places. Um, But I was wondering, because you do go into this into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the practicalities of selling or exchanging this surplus. Because some of it, as you've mentioned, was kind of quite clear. Okay, we'll give you airport supplies for an airport. But there was a lot of stuff And it was all over the place. And sometimes it wasn't super clear what the inventory was in the warehouse in the random island that no one had thought the stuff would be in for longer than two weeks. So can you just give us a little bit more, given how honestly wonderful those details are, um, about how they dealt with this problem of like, oh, look, we have a warehouse. Guess we're going to sell some of it to Peru. No idea what's in the warehouse. How did that end up going down?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I've begun to do some of this history in this chapter, but there's actually a lot more to be done. I mean, I think there would be an interesting history of just these negotiations and these sales. But the basic project is at first they kind of try to come up with inventories and kind of list, uh, put lists together and say on Saturday, if you come down to the to location X, these will be the sort of things on sale. Um And they quickly realize that that's just a non-starter. I mean, there's too much stuff. It's in all sorts of decay. It's costing too much time to sort of look after it. And then the real concern is that they don't want foreign nations uh, what they call skimming the cream off the top. You know, a lot of this material is beginning to deteriorate. Uh, You know, they talk in kind of really colorful detail about what happens to a pair of leather shoes, even if never worn in a box, if they're sitting in a sort of humid uh, jungle on a Pacific island is they sort of just start to melt. Um, And so the solution they hit upon is actually to to sort of bundle it all up together and sell it in what they call bulk sales. Um, And so these are sold on an as is, where is basis. So a foreign nation will see the material, uh, will get a rough sense of what's there based on an inventory and will then make an agreement to purchase all of it. And basically the US can then wipe their hands of the whole deal and say, you know, up to you, find what you want that can be used and anything that can't be used is your now problem to dispose of and to liquidate. And that's the way these sales are negotiated as large bulk sales as part of post-World War II currency negotiations. and then you know, these kind of agreements around pulling aside some tranches of money for other things come out of it. What's not entirely clear to me, and I think is would be a difficult research project, but probably one that someone should do, is to work out just what percentage of the material was necessary and useful, and what percentage was really just kind of rubbish that was being as sort of a surplus tax on the foreign nations purchasing the material, who needed to buy in bulk to get access to some of the the good stuff, um, you know. There's I have instances in the book of, you know, the U.S. talking about well, you know, a bulk sale to China is the best way to do things because in China you can use anything, right? I mean, this idea, a kind of a racialist, civilizationalist logic that the Chinese will be able to make do with our scraps just fine. And there's an instance where they're describing. Uh, sort of candy bars that have been sitting out in an island and have kind of all kind of melted together and they say they've turned gray, um, but, you know, they add, that will probably still be nutritious, right? And so, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's getting bundled into these sales. Um, there are instances of foreign nations complaining and trying to get refunds and that's another whole sort of long process. Uh, but by and large, the US labels everything up as a bulk comes up with an estimation of what it thinks the material is worth. And it has these kind of tables that allows it to do that. Um, You know, they have sort of different rankings for how, you know, if something is deteriorated this much, you take this much of a discount. Uh, Interestingly, for a while, they were adding to the value of the goods, uh, putting in the cost of the good to the foreign nation would also, would include the cost to the U.S. to export it to that nation as a kind of surcharge. And they dropped that eventually. Um, but it's a it's a strange moment. And it's a moment where it, it sort of has the appearances of a market function, right? A Sort of appearances of a price exchange. Um, but really, the prices are being set by the US. And foreign nations have a little bit of leverage to negotiate. But my sense is that they're desperate enough, given the post-war conditions, to get access to what they can in the surplus, you know, tins of food and so forth that they pay the surcharge.
1: I will say that for anyone listening who wants to go write a history of these negotiations, the deals, the attempts at the refunds, all of that, um, I will put my hand up as at least one person who would want to read that book uh, because I do think you offer a really interesting kind of entry point to what is probably a massive research project. Um, So thank you for going into the weeds a little bit um but i know that you're willing to go into the weeds because you do talk about kind of these some other bureaucratic elements um to move to a part of the book that you mentioned at the beginning around sort of press freedom um and freedom of speech um and this kind of took a number of different forms as you discussed that the us tries to make sure that their ideas about freedom of speech and especially export of media can go elsewhere but that the us doesn't really have to reciprocate um So can you explain to us, first of all, kind of where this fear comes from? That is, it really does come through as a fear um, of bringing other things in. And how does this fear perhaps manifest itself most concretely through things like passports and visas?
0: Sure. Uh, You know, one of the themes that I develop in the book is the idea that there is a surprising US hostility. In the 40s and 50s to importing foreign ideas. Uh, you know, we know it's sort of been hiding in plain sight. You know, we know that one of the key dynamics of American political culture in the 1940s and 1950s is kind of McCarthyism, right? And you know, the House Un-American Activities Committee, right? That un-American is a fear of the foreign. And so this book is trying to reconnect those debates about McCarthyism and the sort of Americanism to the politics of cultural globalization. And one of the ways it does so is by looking at uh, one of the kind of concrete mechanisms by which national security hawks, a kind of conservative political formation in the U.S., seeks to punish dissidents and seeks to regulate the flow of information into the American polity. And that's uh, travel documentation, the control of visas and passports. And I did a fair bit of work with the history of both the passport division and the visa division, which are kind of obscure bureaus within the State Department, uh, both of whom are staffed by individuals who are really quite conservative. Uh, you know, sort of the, the passport division is run by one woman from 1927 to 1955. Her name's Ruth Shipley. Uh, she's, a, you know, she's got brothers that work for the FBI and the early version of the CIA. She herself is an avowed anti-communist. She works closely with Pat McCarran on anti-immigration legislation. Uh, And she's really basically like a Hoover-like figure, sort of a long long, uh, durée at the top of this office. And she holds the ability to deny passports to people in the US. Uh, So until the mid-1950s, if you get denied a passport by the US passport office, you can't leave the country. And there are really no ways for you to appeal that denial uh, there are sort of magazine articles at the time that call Shipley the passport czar and, you know, have headlines like, you don't go if she says no. Uh, and similarly, in the visa division, there's a, a guy called Robert Alexander, who's a who's a real sort of McCarthyite right winger who's involved in making sure that, you know, uh, un-American people can't get visas to enter the country. And because there is, uh, you know, there's a slight legal difference in the two divisions. there's There are... Pieces of legislation that outline that you can't get a visa if you advocate the overthrow of the U.S. government, and that under that power, there's a um, a bar on communists entering the country. Uh, the passport division is kind of looser. The passport division kind of writes its own regulations a little more effectively, um, but that means in the in the Cold War period, you know, a lot of famous individuals like. W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson and famous scientists like Linus Pauling can't get a passport to leave the country. You know, hundreds of others can't as well. You know, that they didn't keep good records and they didn't have a good sort of liberal process. It was very opaque what they're up to. So we don't know how many people were denied. But you know, the communists, the anti-communists in charge of the passport division are also on record at the time as saying it's not even the ones who we deny a passport to that is why we should have this power. It's the, it's the radicals who we scare off from ever applying for a passport that really makes us sort of powerful. And so, you know, there's the US border is actually tightly regulated in the 1940s and 1950s. And it takes a sequence of legal challenges in the late 1950s to make sure that Americans have a right to a passport to travel overseas. Um, and ch- legal challenges to the visa regime are never very successful. Uh, you know, there are The famous case is uh, the Belgian Marxist uh, Ernst Mandel tries to come into the country to give talks in the late 60s and is denied a visa. A bunch of American academics say that that violates Americans' right to hear ideas, because obviously Mandel himself doesn't have a First Amendment right to speak in the US because he's not an American citizen. And the Supreme Court rejects that and upholds the ability of the State Department to deny visas. So there's a long history of sort of Uh, ideological screening and policing happening at the border through the mechanisms of the passport and the visa.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it was really interesting. It was perhaps not surprising to hear so much about how uh, visas and passport were restricted. It was really interesting to hear both how much impact one person had and her family, and also how well-known it was at the time that it was this one person. Um, So that was quite kind of a curious discovery. Um, But to move then from the restrictions domestically to sort of abroad, because, again, we're in this environment where what the international organizations of the world, what international law, what international anything will look like is still very much kind of up for debate. Um, And so you discuss a conference in Geneva around freedom of the press, freedom of information. Um, What was kind of the goals of those conferences and how did... The U.S. not particularly enjoy this. Um, tell us about kind of this moment where again we could have gone down a different path in terms of freedom of the press internationally.
0: Yeah, so there's it's a it's a conference on freedom of information uh, at Geneva in 1948, and the idea is that it's going to write uh, both the text of Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the the article related to press freedom. So it's kind of carved out of the process of writing the Universal Declaration and treated as its own sort of special conference, given the importance that everyone places on press freedom. Uh, And at the same time, there's a hope that they will write uh, not just a kind of universal article, but that'll also write a multilateral treaty, a kind of binding piece of international law that will regulate the flow of information and news around the world. Uh, And the U.S. is really in favor of this at first, uh, particularly the U.S. wire services, so the Associated Press and, uh, and UP, UP um, who want to expand their kind of business model. To, you know, the, before World War II and really through in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the, the international distribution of news is run by a cartel agreement where there's three and then four major wire services that sort of are responsible for circulating information around the world. And that's beginning to break down during the war and the the American wire services see that they're going to have potentially a new large global market and they want to write that into international law that they'll have the right for their reporters to travel across borders without policing and the right to transmit information across borders without censorship. And to them, it both looks like a really important piece of liberal reform, given that everyone kind of thinks at the time one of the huge causes of Nazism and World War II was propaganda right a lack of free information crossing borders and secondly it also accords with their commercial imperatives they don't want foreign governments to kind of hold them out because they know that they're the sort of the most primed to take advantage of a new era of globalization Uh, so the us comes to these conferences with a with a vision of what it thinks global freedom of information should mean. And what it basically means is negative liberties, right? The absence of censorship and the absence of borders and the freedom of the US to move around the world and circulate its news. The problem is that every other nation that comes to the, U- to the United Nations also has a definition of what it thinks freedom of information means. And these take roughly two forms. One is an idea that it's not enough to just allow the free movement of journalists and the free flow of news, because there's a risk, and this should be familiar to people in today's debates about fake news, there's a risk that just increasing the flow of information will maybe increase the flow of propaganda. And that the UN, if it's gonna encourage the movement of journalists, needs to also make sure that they're responsible to the truth, and there are proposals to sort of accredit international journalists, or to give uh, nation states the right of reply, so that if an American newspaper publishes something really Uh, scandalous or derogatory about Mexico, that the Mexican government has the right to write back to that newspaper and have that newspaper publish, you know, sort of force a, a reply in the New York Times, say, if it had been too critical of a foreign government. And so that's kind of box number one of alternative visions of press freedom. And box number two, which is articulated particularly by nations from the decolonizing world, says that it's all well and good to reduce barriers to the movement of news and journalists. But that only works if you already have a vibrant news sector. It only works if you can publish newspapers and pay journalists. And poorer nations in the world just don't have that capacity. And they don't have that capacity for a variety of reasons. But the first among them is the fact that you need newsprint to print newspapers after World War II. Uh, And at the time, the U.S., which had about 6% of the world's population, was using 63% of the world's newsprint. And so there's more... Uh, sort of newsprint being used to print advertisements in the US than there is to be to print news in India. And nations like India say, if we're going to do global press freedom, we also need to redistribute some of these resources to make sure that it's not just American uh, cultural imperialism or commercial dominance that comes out of the process, but also a genuine exchange of information that we can also produce our own news and circulate it internationally. Uh, you know, you'll be not surprised to learn that the US doesn't like either of these alternative visions very much. It says that those are kind of statist interferences with the free flow of information. Uh, And the negotiations sort of stalemate over this impasse. And, you know, they write the text of Article 19 for the Declaration of Human Rights, but they can never really agree to binding international law. And this project, which had gone for many years, sort of withers away by the early 1950s, the US uh, is still committed to an idea about spreading its vision of press freedom around the world, um, ironically because it's lost interest in the UN, thinking that the UN will become just a way of uh, legitimizing state control over the flow of information. It says, actually, what we're going to do is just do it ourselves. We're going to unilaterally begin really exporting objective-style American information to the world. Uh, and the mechanism it develops to do that is, ironically, a propaganda program, uh, which it calls the Campaign of Truth. Uh, and you know, then it establishes the U.S. Information Agency. Right, That information becomes the language uh, to describe U.S. efforts to pump its journalism and its news throughout the world.
1: Yep, that is a pretty ironic result of an attempt to create international law to make freedom of information a thing globally. Yep, that also, as with many other aspects of your book, explains a lot of what happened in the 40s and 50s and also what we've ended up with now. So thank you for explaining that to us. Um, To sort of shift focus a little bit, you mentioned in the beginning when you described kind of how this book came together Um, some you you mentioned archives um, that these are sort of individual experiments or investigations rather um, that you've brought together so I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit um, practically about the methods of this book but also you've mentioned a few times kind of bringing political economy into global cultural um, globalization can you tell us a bit about sort of the methods and the methodological process for this book?
0: Yeah, so I mean the book is you know, the, the challenge here is that these are incredibly airy concepts in their kind of self-understanding, you know, free flow of information, two-way exchange. Uh, they've got a real liberal political form that's sort of up in the clouds. And so what I was interested in is actually thinking about how they, these things work concretely historically i mean it's all well and good as i think the the freedom of information example provides it's all well and good to say we believe in freedom of information and everyone kind of agrees on that where the rubber hits the road is when you sit down and try to write a law to to define what that is so my method was to find the sort of institutional locations where these terms are being actually sort of hammered out as concrete propositions and those tended to be uh international meetings uh, and diplomatic encounters. And then those are kind of good sites to work with uh, because on the one hand, the positions get articulated by competing sides and the politics becomes clear. So you can sort of sit and read the mi- the minutes of that Freedom of Information conference and just sort of see who's arguing what. Uh, and they're also important as fact-finding organizations. I mean, one of the things, you know, the book is, makes a strong argument that the United Nations is a lot weaker as an institution in the 40s and 50s than it could have been, and that we shouldn't just presume that the actually existing United Nations system represents liberal internationalism in any clean or straightforward fashion. Uh, but one thing that those organizations are very good at is gathering information and data. And so you know they also provide a repository where you can sort of see some of these underlying flows uh, and also see the politics that are articulated around them. So, you know, the, pro, the, the, the method of the book is by and large, you know, to, to sink deep into the institutions responsible for negotiating these international terms. Uh, and then, you know, it's primarily a book about the American story. Uh, to also look at the American bureaucracies that were responsible for negotiating with those international bodies and to work out, again, these are locations where you see competing American visions being articulated. um, And through those debates, you also get a sense of what the underlying economy of the the field or the organization is. So to maybe just give you a concrete example uh, beyond ones that we've already talked about, you know one of the debates i was very interested in in the 1940s is a proposal to sort of eradicate or radically liberalize visa and passport documentation uh, there's there's hopes in the 40s that if we could get rid of passports and visas both of which are really only about 30 or 40 years old at the end of world war 2 go back to a late 19th century version where you can kind of just jump on a train or a boat and eventually a plane and get off at the other end without going through a document control. That will allow for a sort of more liberal international world order based on understanding. It will also be good for the tourism industry. Uh, and then it's the State Department's passport and visa bureaus, you won't be surprised based on what I've already discussed, that really don't like that idea because they're very concerned about letting foreign radicals into the US and it, they don't want to do that. And within the US government, there's a kind of factional split where the Commerce Department wants to sign up and wants to push this liberalization regime because they think it'll be good for the world economy. And they produce all this data about travel tourism and how travel works. And then the visa and passport divisions don't want to do that. And they mobilize their own sets of arguments uh, in response. And so out of those internal bureaucratic debates, I'm able to sort of reconstruct both what the world of travel looked like, what documents were required where, uh, the stakes of competing visions of travel documentation, and then also tell a story about which bureaucrats win and why. Um, And then you know these turn out to be important hinge points because as you've mentioned, what the United Nations system is going to look like is actually up for grabs. And so you can identify these as kind of institutional turning points for things as nebulous as the right to travel around the world and to travel without a passport. Um, so that's the, the mechanism. It's really pretty old fashioned. Um, you know, I just sit and read a bunch of old documents <laughs> in uh, an archive that have these bureaucratic records, but I think they can turn out to be quite revealing.
1: I think they do turn out to be quite revealing. Um, and in fact, that's a brilliant sort of uh, segue into my traditional penultimate question, um, which is particularly, easy often for authors to uh, answer if they've done archival work, but uh, was there anything in particular that as you were writing this book or writing the pieces that became this book uh, that really surprised you? I certainly was surprised by a number of things in the book, but you obviously are the one that wrote it. Was there anything that surprised you in this process?
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot that surprised me. Um, I think we've hit most of the obvious ones. I'm struggling to think at the end of this interview what some of the others may have been. So let me, you know, I mean, the tenure of someone like Ruth Shipley, you know, 28 years deciding who gets a passport and who doesn't was, she was a character that I've, you know, you couldn't have drawn up a character like that uh, in, in a piece of fiction and have it be believed, I think. Um, the The inequalities of newsprint supply, the scale of post-World War II war surplus. Um, You know, I guess in a broader sense, one of the things that was surprising to me was um, one of the great questions is often, uh, you know, America is pursuing a pretty self-interested foreign policy in the 1940s and 1950s. And one of the debates is, you know, did they know that they were being hypocritical on certain fronts or did they believe their own BS about sort of freedom of information around the world? And there are moments reading these archives where I was really surprised to discover that that was uh, there was you know a factional split on that question that would run deep into the U.S. government. So there were some people who were real politic all the way down who would say things like, "We don't need to reciprocate by liberalizing our visa policies." They're like, "We have so much money, we can do whatever we want, and the rest of the world wants our tourists, so we can just tell them to reduce." visa controls for our tourists without doing the same in reverse. And then there were others who seemed to believe that, oh, we really do need to be part of a liberal world order. And so I think the tendency to try to describe American foreign policy as one or the other uh, is perhaps the wrong debate. What was surprising to me was if you get under the hood a little bit, you see that those tensions and hypocrisies are actually mapped onto different visions of world order and that they're sites of struggle. And it would be interesting, I think, to, to see how many places that, that tension proliferates. Um, but it was an explicit discussion happening within the bureaucracy in the US that I found interesting.
1: Hmm. That is interesting. Um, that is a debate that I've often wondered about. Um, and it was interesting to see as the example you briefly touched on, but obviously you go into more detail in the book within the State Department between sort of the section that's going, well, actually American tourists and American business people want this about visas and travel documents and then visa passport and visas being like well actually though we want this um and that they were essentially arguing within the same building that was quite an interesting detail so it's curious to see that that kind of extends farther.
0: um yeah i mean i think the general point here is and hopefully it's one of the points of the book that uh you know this the history of these kind of flows of information is political all the way down You know, I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the simple takeaway of the book is that this was always a political question. Um, And it's just, it was surprising to me that that was my intuition, but it was still surprising how clear that was when you began looking at particular domains close up.
1: And presumably pretty satisfying to see that intuition confirmed in the archives.
0: It was, although, you know, as I said, it took me uh, a while to realise that all of these things that I was looking at that looked the same should probably go together <laughs> in a book. Um, and once the sort of once the penny dropped, I felt both satisfied and also a bit uh, like a bit of an idiot that had taken me a few years to work it out, but not very satisfying.
1: Well, uh, at the risk of making you have that same feeling again. I do have to ask the traditional final question, which is now that this book is out, oh wait, it's not even yet. We've had a wonderful sneak preview. Um, But now that the book is firmly in the hands of the publishers and the global supply chain, um, what are you working on now or next?
0: Uh, So this one's actually surprisingly easy because this time I have a very clear book. Uh, I'm not just working through a problematic, but I have a book that's on a subject. and so I'm writing a, a history of the Espionage Act, um, which is, so the book's under contract with basic Basic books, and it'll be due to my editor in, in about three months. So it should be out in the fall of 2023, we hope. Um, and it's a narrative history of the Espionage Act, which some people will know is the law that's primarily being used now to prosecute whistleblowers like Snowden and Manning and now Assange. Um, most historians will know it, because it was used during World War I to prosecute anti-war critics like Debs. Um, And along the way, it's also been used to prosecute people for spying like the Rosenbergs. And so the history of the Espionage Act uh, I'm showing is really uh, a way of understanding a kind of long-term evolution in the politics of national security censorship in the U.S. that moves from censoring people speaking in the public sphere to censoring information by keeping it secret within the state. Um, and that also helps us understand some of the pathologies of America's national security secrecy regime um, and sort of all of the things that a security state will get up to uh, when it can hide from transparency. Uh, so that's the project, the main project that I'm working on. Um, I've got a few other side things going too, but that's that's occupying most of my time.
1: Brilliant. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Hopefully when that comes out, you can come back on the network for another interview. Um, but in the meantime, while you go off and work on that, listeners can read your current book. It is available now in ebook form, I am told, and will soon be available in multiple forms. But it, as a reminder, it's titled A Righteous Smokescreen Postwar America and the Politics of Cultural Globalization from the University of Chicago Press. Dr. Sam Lebovic, thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you. This was a lot of fun.